Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Radio Ombudsman. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, it's a privilege to talk to Melissa Mead, who has done more for education about sepsis than anybody else in, in Europe and maybe in the world. She has brought the spotlight onto the issue of sepsis through tragic personal circumstances. And those of you who uh, were lucky enough to be at the PHSO conference uh, last year will remember the wonderful impact she had on all of us in explaining what had happened and what she wants to do. So, uh, Melissa, we're very uh, privileged to have you. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction, Rob. Um, it's it's a it's wonderful to be here and to be able to talk to you today, especially about sepsis, of course. I will get on to sepsis, but could you just start off by telling us a little about yourself and your background when you were growing up and what you wanted to do? Well, that's an interesting question. So when I was a little girl, I actually wanted to be a train driver, but I haven't quite accomplished that yet. <laughs> One day... But I found myself um, in the world of financial services, and that is what I was doing prior to what we're going to go and talk on uh, today. And I live in Cornwall and grew up in Cornwall, and that's where I am now um, with my husband and son, Arthur. Right. And what sort of values were instilled in you when you were growing up? Well, I think honesty and integrity and um, to be, I think, work hard and achieve you know you will achieve whatever you need to achieve you know and it's set your sights high is what my dad always used to teach me and that you know anyone can achieve anything if they put their mind to it so um that's the kind of mantra that I've had throughout my life and something that I continue to instill in my son that he can achieve anything he would like to achieve well you've certainly done that so thank you for that so we we know that in 2014 uh, your son William very sadly died from sepsis. Could you tell us just a bit about what happened, please? Yeah, of course. So William, um, he was born a healthy baby, so um, he didn't have any sort of um, other illnesses or chronic um, illnesses that would impact his day-to-day -day life. And shortly before his first birthday, we had taken him to the doctors a number of times about a cough that was seemingly just just a normal day-to-day -day cough you know nothing nothing serious um but over time and I'm talking a couple of weeks it had worsened he coughed more frequently for longer periods of time and it did get to a point where it would keep him up at night and things and in the course of about six weeks we took him to the doctors four times more frequently towards the end of that and then the weekend that he died um we had taken him to the GP on the Friday and he had a temperature of over 40. He was very combative and not himself at all. And he was examined by the doctor. And at the time, I didn't know anything about the type of examinations that a doctor would do, um, you know, like blood pressure and things like that or what would be required. Um, so when we were told that he just had a viral cough and, a, you know, a viral infection, we 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 believed that because we didn't have any reason not to believe it. Unfortunately, this was a Friday night. And so we were heading into a weekend over, you know, just before Christmas. It was icy. We've only got one acute site down here in Cornwall. And um, and I said to the doctor, what what 
what shall I do if he gets worse? And he said, don't worry, it's nothing grisly. And we, I, I recall it, we took him home and we topped up on supplies of, of cowpon neurofen. And the next day, his temperature seemed, it came down, but he seemed worse. And the one thing the doctor had said to us was get on top of his temperature. So I just, I, I was sort of confused by the fact that he seemed worse, but his temperature was coming down. So anyhow, I decided to call 111. They asked me to take a temperature three times during that phone call and it was 35.4. So they, they reassured me that I'd got his temperature down and that was good. At this stage, I didn't know anything about a low temperature being dangerous. I described through this phone call nearly every symptom of sepsis. So he wasn't wetting his nappies. He was um, quite cold to touch. So I, I couldn't get any clothes on him because he he was he was quite upset about having clothing, sort of touching his skin. It was difficult to explain. But for that reason, they said, oh, he's, he's, if he's, he haven't got clothes on him, he had a vest on, um, his arms and cold, his hands, you know, feet will be cold. So he was making a funny whining noise. He had obviously was very high and then this very low temperature and he was very, very pale. And I explained all of these symptoms, probably not in the same use of words if I've explained them now, yeah. um, because at the time I didn't really know that mottling was a thing of the skin. For example, anyway, the, the phone call was um, a, a non-urgent six-hour callback, and um, so we I hung up. And Williams sort of didn't he didn't get any better certainly, um, and he was just very weak, very lethargic, very very tired. I couldn't placate him in any way. I couldn't tempt him with food. I couldn't tempt him with any sort of liquid of, of milk or, or water, or even an ice pop. You know anything. And I put him to bed and anyone that's a parent will know that when you put a child to bed, you stealth out of the room because you don't want to wake them up. But I just stood at the end of his cot and I looked at him and thought something is just not right. And so I went downstairs and I called 111 back and I asked to speak to the doctor and we had to be patched through to a, a, little, a little local cottage hospital, as we call them down here. And... I can recall this this doctor telling me that it was very very busy this this evening, and I saw I felt a bit of a nuisance, and I, I reeled off all of these things that he'd had this very high temperature yesterday. And now it's sort of thirty five point four again. He, I was falsely reassured that that was a good thing that I'd got on top of his temperature. I said that he was very very tired. I said that he hadn't wet his nappies or he hadn't eaten, hadn't gone to the toilet, and I was. It, it felt like, and, and this, this phone call was actually played out at the inquest, and I said, in your professional opinion, what do you think I should do? Because listening to it back, I was leading all of the questions. I was proactive and the doctor was reactive. At the time, that was obviously subconscious for me. It wasn't something that I was doing on purpose, if that makes yeah. sense. And the doctor reiterated that the best place for him was in bed with cowpole fluids and plenty of rest and that he'd be right as ninepence in the morning. And we checked on him during the night and he was sort of snoring softly. And um, about sort of 5.30 in the morning, um, I heard some rustling and could see on his little monitor that he would sort of just trying to take a drink from his sippy cup. So I thought, that's good. He's, you know, he's thirsty. He's wanting something to drink. And... I went into his room just after eight 
and we had blackout blinds and I didn't have my glasses on. I could I can't see very well without them. And I was talking to him and I was calling his name and I just there was I, I had no response. And I walked over to his cot and I stroked his cheek, which was warm and he didn't move. And then I put my arms through the bar of his cot. And I stroked his side and he was stiff and I shot up and I opened the curtains and he was staring straight through me. And I could tell very obviously that he had died. And then the nightmare began. Um, we obviously contacted immediately 999. The ambulance and the paramedics were there really, really quickly. But within seven minutes of that phone call, they turned to me and said, I'm sorry, my love, but he's gone. And that is where, where for us, my life was completely stopped and redefined from that moment um, because I just didn't understand why and what had happened to him. Thank you for telling us that. Um, other people in that situation, which I, I, you know, I can't countenance because I've not been through it, would want to concentrate on grieving. And clearly, you have grieved and you are grieving, but you decided to take action as well, which is immensely difficult to do. D you, the way you describe it, there was no question about uh, going on and trying to take action to find out what had happened. Did you have any uh, reservations about doing that? Um, none, none whatsoever. Um, I. I immediately tried to make sense of something in my head or trying to, to, to accept in some way what happened, but how can you accept the unacceptable? And it was at the moment the coroner called me on Christmas Eve and said, did William have a cough? And I sort of had a nervous laugh and I said, yeah, he'd had a cough for weeks. I've been to the doctor about it. I said, why, how do you know that? And she said, well, he had pneumonia. And I said, well, what do you mean he had pneumonia? I said, you know, and I, I catalogued all of these times we'd been to the doctors. And it obviously transpired that William had had a bacterial chest infection and it had developed into pneumonia, which gave way to sepsis in those last few days of his life. And he, she said he died of sepsis. And I thought, goodness me, I've never heard of that. And so I did what everyone does is I Googled it. Yeah. And I literally ticked off every single symptom that he had, that I had explained to the 111 call handler and the doctor. And I didn't understand how they hadn't picked it up, because whilst it might be rare or that thankfully children don't die very often, it isn't that uncommon. And he had a known cough. He was quite clearly unwell when we took him to the doctors. I didn't understand how we arrived at the position we were in. And so rather than get angry, I suppose, I got active and um, it wasn't easy. It was probably an indescribable journey of survival. And 
in part probably what kept me alive um, for a period of time. My mental health was very, very poor during that period of time because I wasn't allowed to grieve because I had to look at everything objectively. You know, I'd receive his post-mortem report and I would take to my bed for a couple of days and then I would have to look at it almost from a third person perspective and try to pick apart exactly what had happened. And unfortunately, the moment that, from our experience, the moment that we started to ask questions of those involved, as in the doctor's surgery, 111, Southwest Ambulance Trust and, and the others, the doors were shut in my face. And I didn't understand because all I wanted was answers. All I wanted to know is how we had got to this position. And Paul and I, my, my husband, are fairly well educated and we didn't understand that if we could be in this position, then so many other people could also be in this very vulnerable position. Of course, William was nonverbal, being one year old, so he couldn't tell me, mummy, it hurts here or this is how I'm feeling. So yeah. I thought, well, his voice wasn't heard when he was alive and I'm going to make damn sure it is when he's after he's died. And that was kind of how I set about ensuring that his voice was heard and that he was remembered because he's not just a number or a statistic he's a person and you know we grieve for him now 10 10 years on yeah. you know his his brother born after him is grieving quite profoundly at the moment trying to understand and comprehend missing something he never had yeah so we we ended up having an inquest and the inquest found that William could have and should have been saved with better care. And it was following that that I managed to get NHS England to start a report, which was ended up being a root cause analysis report, which found 16 failings in his care and four missed opportunities to save his life. Um, and I don't think there's anything worse than losing your child. But to know that they could have and should have been saved with even basic care is very, very difficult to live with. Um, and I just knew that I needed to do something for him. I needed to still be his mum somehow. And I think campaigning over the last 10 years or so has allowed me to still be an active mum to him. Could we? Could you just tell us a bit about that campaign for which you, you've received a royal honour. I think you went to Buckingham Palace, or um, so that must have been an amazing experience. Um, but when did you decide to make it a more institutional focus than than just you campaigning? It's a very good question, and um, something over the last ten years, um, you you kind of realise that 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 us as lay people in the, in the public um who access services within the nhs can somewhat be blindsided by the goliath that is the nhs and it's actually we found out very quickly very siloed and if you go to your gp surgery and you ask them to put up a poster about sepsis or a leaflet to help other parents that's not going to happen in every other gp surgery because they simply just is simply not linked. So I thought we need to go right to the top and this needs to be cascaded down. This needs to be there needs to be some mandated education, clinical awareness, public awareness, because if we like I said, if we can go through this, so can anyone. 
And obviously, the more I got involved, the more I heard about other people having experienced the same thing. And um, the, sort of what you talk about, we William, when William's report was released back in January 2016, I decided that what I would do is use that report as a pivotal moment to push it out into the media. And on that day, I did, crikey, 30 odd television interviews, including news, um, radio. And Jeremy Hunt, the then health secretary, was recalled back to Parliament and on an urgent question about William's death. And he apologised to us on behalf of the government and the NHS for allowing William's death to happen. And so I simply I tweeted him and I said, how about we have this chat? face to face. And I met him and I recall saying to him, Jeremy, the best apology is change behaviour. And it was at that moment, and I think he realised that I didn't have an ulterior motive. I didn't have or want anything other than something I could never have back. I just wanted this to not happen to anyone else. And yeah. so I was just persistent. And I think I was called a constructive nuisance <laughs> at one point, which was a bit of a compliment, but doesn't feel like it. Um, because we have the right to make informed decisions about our care and the right to have knowledge about making informed decisions about our children or loved ones that have don't have capacity, for example. Um, and so I just didn't think it was very equal or fair the treatment that we we had received and wanted to change that for others. It, it's rather patronising to describe you as a, <laughs> a, a nuisance, even, even a constructive nuisance. And that does say something about the culture of the NHS, that um, the way in which patients and families are regarded by clinicians, which I think it remains a, a very a uh, significant problem in trying to change the culture of the NHS. Um, we, we published our report on sepsis 10 years ago, uh, and we're going to produce another report in the next couple of months about sepsis and uh, the issue as it stands today. But in your reading, how much has changed in those 10 years? I think it would be unfair of me to say that nothing has changed because it has. There's been significant advances in sepsis awareness, sepsis education, um, clinical advances. Awareness of the public has skyrocketed somewhat. Um, but again, one in three still don't believe or understand that it's a medical emergency. So there's, there's so much still to be done. Um, the difficulty is in, you, you know, I, I'm obviously non-clinical. But it's difficult sometimes to diagnose sepsis because of a multitude of factors. However, what we want to be able to do and what I think we have semi-achieved to a fairly good um, success is a knowledge amongst the public to say, just ask, could it be sepsis? If they have an infection or a known infection and when they present to healthcare, say, could it be sepsis? The difficulty, and you touched upon it just then, is culture and attitude and behaviour. And we sort of go back to the doctors know best. And the thing is, is that sometimes they don't. The doctors didn't know William best. I knew him best. I knew what normal was for William and William wasn't normal. And whilst I might not be able to put that in the right medical terminology to trigger a, a thought process, 
what I was telling you is that my child is not right. And I've approached you as, as a healthcare professional to help me understand why he isn't right. And certainly something with sepsis is and something that we that we encountered is we were just told oh, it's just a viral infection without really doing any tests. You cannot physically tell me it's a viral infection. I know that now. Um, but what we would ask is that healthcare professionals say to you, it's not sepsis because and don't just fob us off with it's just a viral infection. Tell us why it isn't something or why it is something. Help us to take more responsibility as well. Um, you know, we have the right to have um, an understanding of what's what's wrong with us or what isn't wrong with us, um, rather than just being told something mundane because we haven't gone to med school. I don't think that that's right. And I think, you know, the NHS is, what, 75 years old, roughly thereabouts. And it's taken 75 years to build up this culture and this sort of negative behaviour. And I think it's going to take 75 years to undo. And I think that's the biggest issue that we have nowadays is you can mandate protocols, processes, put sequins in and do whatever you want in terms of quality directives. Um, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And if that clinician does not think sepsis, he's not going to treat for it. That's the biggest difficulty that we receive that, that, that we face nowadays. Uh, I, I'm struck by the similarity in some ways, although the cases are very different between you and uh, Merope Mills. Mm -hmm. And I know you've spoken eloquently about that case. Um, I'd be interested in your view about uh, the second opinion. Clearly, that wouldn't have an impact on changing the culture, but it would give people the opportunity to challenge in a way which wasn't there when you uh, articulated it and certainly doesn't seem to have been there when Maropi articulated it. Could you say something about that? Yeah, I, I mean, it, what happened to Martha Mills, who, who just, the, the young girl that lost her life, is is absolutely devastating and abhorrent, in 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 all honesty. Um, the the right to a second opinion, I, I believe, is is something that we should be able to do. And I think what Marope is trying to achieve is an urgent second opinion, because I think most, if not all people would know that if you're not happy with your care, you can go and challenge it. Do people actually do that? I don't know. But in emergency care, what are the chances that if you're speaking to a consultant or a senior clinician that you challenge them and say, I'd like a second opinion, that what you're not going to get is, well, be treated like a nuisance or, yeah. it, or the process be made very, very difficult to achieve that? You know, at the end of the day, when when we are, if I if I put myself in that position, if I wanted a second opinion, it's because I'm concerned. It's because I'm worried. It's because I'm vulnerable. Um, and I have concerns that I don't feel are being answered. And I think actually that should be reflected back upon the clinician because they've not reassured that patient enough that they were they would like a second opinion. Um, and perhaps over time, the bedside manner has eroded somewhat. I don't know. The time being able to spend with a patient um, has declined. But I do believe that if, if we are unhappy with the quality of care that we believe we're receiving or the, the 
diagnosis that we've received or lack of diagnosis in most cases in terms of sepsis, we should be able to ask for a second opinion. You know, I know talking very candidly, if, if you went to a car garage and you weren't happy with the service, you'd take your car and take it to another garage. Why should we not be able to do that with our health? It's a good point. Thank you. Um, just as far as the UK Sepsis Trust is concerned, what what are your ambitions going forward, given how much progress you've already made in raising awareness about the issue? I think, um, you know, the objectives of the, the UK Sepsis Trust are to support people affected by sepsis and to continue to drive forward awareness and education around sepsis. Um, I know that they're educating thousands and thousands of people every year, clinicians, healthcare professionals from you know, the, the front door right up to the, the, the surgeons or, or the senior consultants. I think there needs to be some kind of shift change in the way that, that sepsis is treated in a holistic view, because it isn't just one person's problem. It's everyone's problem. It's every speciality, right from ED through to urosepsis, neutropenic sepsis, all of the above. Um, so I think there needs to be a spotlight on it. And, you know, your report, hopefully, that's coming out later this year, combined with other reports that I know of that are coming out later this year in terms of children's um, deaths, is just going to highlight more and more the need for education and speed around the diagnosis of sepsis. And it would be good to see the government standing up and doing something about this in a cohesive way. And with the same shared objective, because I don't think there's anyone out there that's suggesting that there's a different way to do it. We just need to stand up and be heard and for the government to help. Um, and I know that they have a, a five year national action plan on sepsis and antimicrobial resistance. And they are they might be listening, but we don't want it to just be lip service. We want it actually to be tangible changes that are going to affect every single process, whether that be pandemic preparedness, hygiene you know, filtration in the hospital, infection management in the hospital and post-sepsis syndrome, you know, right the way through from the moment someone could potentially have an infection to the moment they hopefully walk out of a hospital alive. Um, it needs to be dealt with in a really holistic manner. And I know the, the um, infection management coalition is something that's being put together to try and manage that that process. Thank you. Uh, I've got two final questions for you, if I may. I, I'm interested in whether you think that uh, advocacy on behalf of people who aren't as articulate as you clearly are would help people raise the issues that clearly need to be raised in the unequal relationship between uh, clinicians and, and patients. I, You know, I, I deliver a number of talks every year, probably going into the hundreds. Um, and I always share William's story. And I always help people to understand that they are also patients at the end of the day. Those clinicians at some point in their life are going to need and require NHS treatment for whatever it might be. And we are brothers and sisters and mothers and friends. And it goes back to the old adage, you know, treat people how you want to be treated. And there are some people, as you say, that that cannot stand up 
for a number of reasons, rightly or wrongly, and advocate for something that's gone wrong. And, you know, this is why I wanted to be, I didn't want to be angry. I don't want to be consumed by anger, because I know that if I can speak up for those that have been treated like like us, then hopefully other people will not be as scared to speak up either. And a lot of the time people don't speak up because they weren't listened to in the first place. So that brings me on to my last question. And I could go on for a lot. But usually I ask people what advice they'd give to young people coming in to the ombudsman profession on the basis of your experience. But for you, I think it's more relevant to ask what about people facing the same situation that you faced? What advice would you give to them now? Well, I think I would give people the voice to be able to, well, the confidence to speak up because you know your loved one and you know yourself and you know what isn't right or wrong. And if you don't feel that you're getting an explanation that you don't feel reassured, just keep asking, ask for a second opinion. Um, and I think it also goes into what you, you you comment about, you know, the ombudsman. Um, whenever we speak to anyone in life, you just don't know what impact you're going to have in that five minutes or 10 minutes on anyone. And if I came and sat in front of a, a doctor in a GP surgery, what he says to me in those 10 minutes, and certainly what he said to me in those 10 minutes when I took William in for the last time, has stuck with me for the rest of my life. I can remember his clothes, I can remember his smell, I can remember his word and the sound of his voice. Any clinician has is in a privileged position to be able to help and treat vulnerable people at their most, well, the most vulnerable time. And sometimes it isn't going to be a positive outcome because naturally not all um, healthcare um, attendances are positive, but you can still be and have a positive impact on that person. And that goes for, for, for you guys at, at the Ombudsman, when you are speaking to the members of the public, you're speaking to them about their most, probably their most horrific experience they've ever had in their life. Mm. And we have the ability to be able to be positive and have a lasting impact on them that they're going to remember in a way that is not going to hurt them because we're all people at the end of the day and it's you know kindness and respect is is free thank you very much it goes back to your point about respecting people on the basis that you expect to be treated the same as people would treat you and i think that's a consistent theme thank you for joining us today thank you for the work that you've done you you've made your son immortal in a way that is just a deep consolation for something that shouldn't happen to anybody. So on behalf of all our listeners, I want to thank you, Melissa, and to wish everyone uh, a good day and take care. This is Rob Behrens on Radio Ombudsman, signing off and saying uh, all the best. Thank you for listening to Radio Ombudsman. We would love to know what you think, so please leave a review or comment. If you like what you hear, please share and subscribe to future episodes.